Blog Talk Radio. Straight Talk Radio, where we discuss business, politics, and culture. Uh, this is Donia Keating. I'm your host, coming to you live from the Seattle area. It's about 1 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time on Wednesday, April 17th. Um, if you're listening to the live feed and you want to join the conversation, you can call in at 929-477-2404. <clears throat> we'll see how it goes. Uh, different opinions are fine. We're always uh, accommodating of, of those, but if you get crazy, you're just going to get earlocked. So. <clears throat> Sorry about the uh, the frog in my throat. It's just been one of those those weeks. So this is the first and only show we've done in 2019, thus far anyway. Um, it's probably been rescheduled more than a half a dozen times since we've tried to air it, I think, back in maybe February, even March. Um, and I've been reminded that we only did one show in 2018 as well. So um, the long and short of it is just typically the same thing. Um, we've been very busy. And I think the vision for the podcast tends to morph over time. I mean, I agree <clears throat> with my producers that I need to get back on on a reasonable track or just call it a day or whatever. So um, my thought here today is um, to cover a few of the topics our listeners have been pinging us about. You know, some of them are local and others are more broad. Um, I think Governor Jay Inslee's presidential campaign is one of them. Uh, the new race equity task force that's been formed on Bainbridge Island and how that's been received. Um, obviously, uh, Boeing's recent 737 MAX 8 issues uh, have come up, and um, some of the pinging we've got are about what's happening with the high school robotics team, the Spartronics team this season, and um, ethics complaints at City Hall. And then, of course, the exciting news, uh, the first black hole photo that, you know, had uh, different conversations, uh, you know, kind of congealing out there about, you know, the, the hole itself and then who was behind it and whatever. And then, of course, now the recent fire in Paris. So um, we're going to take those topics in no particular order. Um, our chat is up and running for people that have comments and questions um, beyond this. And then we are going to see who is out here to join us. I hope it's my trusty sidekick, Charles. Charles, are you out here? Sidekick is present. <laughs> Do you want to give like a little intro about yourself, or you just want to jump into it? Just jump into it. Okay, let's jump into it. So uh, let's start with the Notre Dame uh, Cathedral on the fire. So to some, obviously, it's a sacred religious space. Um, to others, it's an art treasure and uh, a symbol of history, uh, generations of effort and labor <clears throat> and human endurance. And so, Charles, what are your thoughts about what happened in Paris? Well, clearly it's a tragedy, and, you know, when you think about how these things were constructed and how many years they've been standing, um, you know, they're, they're architectural and historical treasures, and, of course, it has clearly, you know, religious significance and stuff like that, and here it is a week before Easter Sunday, the thing's burning, you know, it's like, wow. Um, but, you know, you think about, like, how they built these things back in the day, there's a lot of, like, this huge amount of wood in the in the roof of that cathedral and it's 800 years old 
and they're doing repairs, and it doesn't take much to, to get, you know, very, very old dry wood to burn. And once it gets started, it was very difficult to do anything about it. So, you know, it's tragic, but it's also like I hope that when – I think the hardest thing is going to be when they go back to rebuilding it, are they going to try to rebuild it like stick for stick, try to make it exactly the same, or are they going to say, let's, you know, let's update this a little bit, like let's make it look very similar, but let's use, say, structural steel instead of all this wood in the in the roof and stuff like that so it's less likely to burn down and stuff like that. So I hope they uh I hope they find the happy balance. I wouldn't want to uh be in the conversations with the uh people that are arguing for historical accuracy versus modernization. <laughs> That's my well, yeah, and it. you know, and and of course, you know, sprinklers, hello. Um <laughs> but I mean, I've I've seen some of the articles out there that talk about some of the donations that are coming in um to help rebuild it. And I think Selma Hayek's husband is um a billionaire, and he's donating. I think I don't have the figure in front of me, but it's over a hundred million dollars. And other people are starting to do that. And this, you know, like you said about the cathedral, it took two hundred years to finish um, when the work began in eleven eighty. That's eight hundred and thirty nine years old, and it survived weather yep. and the French Revolution and World War Two and Napoleon and riots and all this other stuff. So <clears throat> when the spire burned down, and many of us were reminded, you know, that this had actually occurred before, like in seventeen eighty six, it had a supporting structure it was weakened and so it had the spire had to be removed and replaced so it's it's you know on the one hand people are talking about you know um you know this is you know burning off for new things to happen and then other people are saying hey this is really kind of some history lost and it'll never be the same again and so forth but if you're fortunate to have ever visited it i mean it's clear that it's a pinnacle and a beautiful experience and a sight to behold and uh, i spent a few times there in quiet contemplation it's not inspired by religion for me um so i mean that that argument and everything that's kind of come out of that it's doesn't really apply but of course you know the spirit of all there is really just kind of you know it was very very um uh inspiring when i was there i just enjoyed it from a lot of different perspectives but interestingly enough as is always the case on social media i mean the issue or the topic gets contorted you know it's kind of serving an agenda and before long i mean it's it's weaponized you know against people that are perceived to be the enemy or somehow less than or whatever and i saw some debates out there about <clears throat> you know how it was white wealthy westerners who were essentially worshiping uh things instead of people and idols but they had no similar affinity for people or tra- tragedies elsewhere and so one of the things that came up was you know when no no one said anything about, you know, the, the the mosque that's been burning in Jerusalem, and nobody said anything about, you know, the black churches that were set on fire in, you know, March and early April. And, you know, it's kind of a shame that um, myopia is used as a blunt instrument to shame and marginalize a, a collective consciousness and, and to try to tell people who they are instead of trying to understand who they are. I mean, it is what it is, and you can either decide to become a part of the, the muck or just simply walk on by, which you know, thankfully, both of us decided to do. But it's just a very interesting commentary on human nature um, and and how they always have to find a way to to find the lemon, you know, in the middle of something. So, any thoughts on that before we move to the next topic? Well, I think they kind of t- they kind of try to take ownership of the conversation and take it over and kind of hijack it because there have been conversations about all these different things. And it's kind of a false uh, premise to think that because you want to talk about what happened in L.A. versus what happened in New York versus what happened in London versus what happened in Africa, that we all have to think equally and care about everything equally the same. 
the people in Africa might not necessarily care about what's happening in L.A., but it's important to the people in L.A. I just think it's this false dichotomy, and they're just arguing for argument's sake. Notre Dame was important. It has its own issues. All these other places are important and have their own issues in terms of their own people and different things that are going on. And it's like, you know, to try to say that you've got to care about everybody everywhere all the time is to almost say, you know, there's no way you can do it. You may as well care about nothing. And I think that's kind of a, that's a false premise. I would rather care deeply about some things, but there's no way I can, I can absorb the world all everywhere. You know what I mean? <laughs> We're going to be selective. So that's, well, I that's think my that our- take on it. Yeah, I think that you're right about that that uh, point in that there is no single person on this planet who is bleeding for every single thing that happens on this planet because it's just not possible. I mean, you would just be exhausted. Um, and it's not a question of, of deciding what is more or less important. Sometimes it just comes down to not knowing about something. And there are people that sit there 24-7, 365, they're on Facebook or wherever, and they're reading every single headline that comes down. And then there are other people who are not. And so it's just a question of, hey, well, maybe I didn't know about that and just give me the benefit of the doubt of having not learned about that of news yet and now that i have learned about that news then you know of course you know give me an opportunity to respond to that or you know something's coming down in my feed for the short period of time that i've looked in and of course i make a comment about it and i have a genuine sentiment about it but it doesn't mean that i don't have a genuine sentiment about something else that might come across my feed or news that may come across my consciousness while i'm in the you know in the in the process of living life and i just think it's it's less about the information and it's less about who's caring more or less about some other issue than it is about trying to bludgeon someone with, you know, righteousness so that they can feel like they're somehow better than others. And it's just a different disposition. You can either come from a disposition where you're trying to bridge and trying to create something and you're trying to be proactive about it, or you can come from a disposition where, you know, I think it's really the under the underlying issue is probably some sort of insecurity or some type of anger or some type of, I don't know what it is, but you know, you can come from the opposite side of that, which is always to assume the worst motive um, on the part of others. So I just think it was, uh, you know, interesting, and, and the timing of the um, of the fire was also interesting, especially for religious people that are dealing with, you know, Christians or whatever that are dealing with Easter, you know, which I'm not. So uh, anyway, um, it looks like let's talk about something local. So the ethics complaints against City Council Ron Peltier. Or Peltier. I don't know. I mean, I would say Peltier because it looks French, and that's how I would say it. But there have been a few. Um, David Johnson, I think Bonnie McBrien, and a recent one by the wife of our uh, former city manager, uh, Don uh, Doug Schultz, that has, you know, they've filed these different complaints, and there have been different results of these complaints. But do you have any thoughts before I start kind of laying the, the foundation for some of these? Um. You know, it's 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 kind of like looking at a train wreck, and I I, I don't want to be part of the gapers block. <laughs> so I'm like, I mean, part of it is, yeah, I feel like I feel like it's social rubbernecking, and um, and quite frankly, I mean, you know, oh, somebody didn't file a permit, didn't do this or do that, and it's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, they want to tar and feather people, you know, and I I don't I don't want to be part of the mob. I am not going to be part of the mob. Sorry. Um, on the other hand, if if something's serious, and you know most of these ethic charges are over, you know you shouldn't have said something about somebody. You know, okay, I don't like that either. Um, 
but that's one level. This isn't like somebody who had their hand in the cookie jar who were stealing funds from the city or something else, or wasn't even, you know, not necessarily acting in the best interest of the city. I mean, I, I think they're, they've drawn some lines, and I, I agree there's, you know, certain areas where they're not supposed to just cross over boundaries and, you know, pursue people and talk about, you know, the city manager after he's left, you know, to, you know, the other city. I get that, you know, they're, you know, you're interfering with his employment in another location, and sure enough, a lot of people are kind of pissed, you know, that Doug left, all that good stuff. Um, but I wouldn't be the one to say it, and, and but I'm, I'm not the one who wrote the ethics rules, so they're pursuing those ethics rules. And my take on all of this is, let's make sure the punishment fits the crime, and uh, let's all act with a little bit more due diligence and be nicer to each other. That would be my take on it, if I could you know, enforce things. But how do you get there? I don't know. Well, I know one of them, and I'm not going to really talk about that one today, is about the uh, wood chipping incidents, apparently where there were some wood chips delivered to Ron's property, and he had nothing to do with it. Apparently it was his wife, and then, of course, there's the cynicism that says, oh, sure, blame the wife. But I, I'm not here to talk about any of that. I mean, I think they dealt with that. I think the two um, complaints that kind of stand out for me are the ones that took place between Bonnie McBrien or the one that filed by Bonnie McBrien and also the one that was recently filed by Lisa uh, Schultz. And I remember watching the live stream when Bonnie McBrien originally addressed City Hall at the August 14 meeting. And she started by thanking Doug and his staff and, and then you know saying his, his resignation came in part from a city council member acting like a bully. And, and a lot of us didn't want uh, Doug leaving for some other place. But, you know... It happens. Um, Cole Medina interrupted and said at that point that her comments were kind of bordering or appeared to be bordering on a personal attack, and he, you know, advised against it. And so then she added, you know, her concerns and her husband's um, efforts to build on their property. And so there's a whole other story about that and the new um, regulations that have come out that have really impacted a lot of people. But at any yeah. uh, event, she she mentioned tightening conditions through a committee that Ron allegedly directs. And she said specifically that Behe and Feed were told that they can't put brick on an exterior of their building and they have to follow instructions of the committee and instead use wood. And so she ended her comments by alleging intimidation, okay. presumably by Ron. And the inference was that Ron had something to do with this whole thing with the committee. And so he briefly tried to address her comments, you know, right after that. But he circled back at the end of the council meeting and called her a liar. He was, you know, Repeatedly, he was obviously very upset about some of those comments. But you know, again, um, not long after that took place, he wrote an email to about 150 people calling her mean-spirited and vindictive. And and of course, she filed with the city's ethics board because that's you know that's just beyond outside out of bounds. I mean, it's just not something that should be happening. But right. when this came back up um, at the February 26, 2019 meeting, which I was actually at for part of it, and then. Um, went back to look at the rest of it on live stream. But at that point, there were all of these people that started coming up and talking about, you know, Ron and defending him because this was one of those agenda items on for the meeting that evening. And so by the time that, you know, Bonnie got up to speak, she was visibly upset and kind of a little, I mean, more than just upset, there was just something a little bit off about um, how she was reacting. And I think maybe that was because of the cumulative effect of this, you know, issue and being, you know, receiving death threats and, I mean, all kinds of stuff impacting her business, things that really would impact or, or bother the majority of us. But she made yes. an interesting comment 
um, while she was doing that, that she does not lie and did not lie, which, you know, I'll get back to that later. But she said it wasn't her who called Ron a bully. She was saying that she was quoting a front-page article and others, but she wasn't actually calling him a bully. But if you go back and you actually listen to her original comments, which I did, I don't think that's quite accurate. I think she's got a different take on her her um, original comments. Um, because I, the, from my perspective, she did reference the article, but she also did call Ron a bully. And she even talked about his intimidation tactics. So I mean, those contextual comments were, were hers. Um, and in that same February meeting, she accused Ron of, of twisting her words. And from what I could tell, the issue of what she said about Bay Hay and Ron's alleged influence um, over this committee towards them was never really addressed. So, I mean, if that's what sparked his rage, um, then that was never really, in my opinion, addressed. But, uh, again, you know, I don't, I didn't want to see Doug go either, but I knew her comments would spark an issue, and they did. Yeah, I do. I, I have mixed feelings, I mean, I think, um, about a lot of this. But, you know, when you really get down to it, I really think what's driving a lot of the drama is that there's kind of like two camps. And there are those that, uh, because because Bainbridge is situated so close to Seattle, because the Seattle market's going nuts, there are those that would like to build up Bainbridge, right, and add more housing and add more resources here. And, in fact, as part of the comprehensive plan, Bainbridge is going to accept, you know, a certain percentage of housing units. I forget how many there is total, but it's, there's growth planned for Bainbridge Island. And this is in conflict with the camp that would love to say, we don't want anybody building anything here ever. Okay, so there are two camps. There's the ones that want to see it develop, and then there are the ones that don't want to see it develop. And I guess there's probably another group in the middle that says some development is fine as long as it's done well. I'd like to be in that camp, right? I'm in their camp. Uh, So I understand there's got to be some rules and regulations. I think Cole's in that camp. I mean, he understands there's requirements that we have to fulfill for allowing development here, and then they also want to control it. And they started throwing up this building moratorium, which has been extended a couple times. And for some people, if they've taken out loans or they've engaged developers and spent money to develop their properties, uh, because they're trying to take advantage of, you know, the, the great market here right now. And then all of a sudden they run afoul of, you know, regulations that say, no, you can't build, no, you can't put brick on your building, no, you can't do X, Y, Z. Some of these regulations are, are intended to protect, and some of them, like, for instance, the, I think the overreaching comprehensive, uh, the, the uh, what do you call it, the um, critical areas ordinance is a lot of overreach. You know, there are people that are saying, you know, here's a, a tree ordinance and it's, you know, 300 pages long when most other places have a 30-page one, you know. I heard that comment before. I haven't, like, looked at all the details. The point is we're regulating the heck out of Bainbridge Island, and I think behind it isn't just a, an issue of, quote-unquote, protecting it, but a way of trying to prevent it from being developed. And I think those two camps are always going to be in conflict, and there's going to be a lot of harsh words going back and forth because once you start – trying to prevent somebody from making a livelihood or trying to prevent them from leveraging or, access, or, or getting value for their property, you're going you're gonna to set, set up a lot of problems. I know that Ron is in the camp that would not like to see Bainbridge developed. He's clearly, you know, one of the people that says, no, stop everything, and there are others that are not. So I'm, I'm seeing that conflict coming along. Yeah, 
and you know he does have a way about him that isn't always the professional conduct one would expect from an elected elected official. Or I mean, I mean, you could argue that in today's world, it's that's actually becoming more of a thing of the past because you know even from the federal level on down, we see with Congress and and with you know POTUS and things like that. I mean, the professional conduct isn't really just. Uh, something you could take for granted. But I can understand why he might become frustrated with, with being called a bully or being accused of intimidating a committee, yeah. you know, if he had no influence in that process, actually. But he still crossed the line by sending out an email to those 150 people. The board said his email was retaliatory and harassing, and it was. Um, and it also, the ethics board also said that, you know, using a city email account to broadcast a council member's dislike of public comments, it fails any test of respectful communication, and it was unacceptable. So, um but, you know, like I said, I was going to get back to this. As for the I don't lie comment that was made, I mean, there are two occasions that I'm personally aware of that you know, indicate either a willful decision on her part to disregard what was obvious and contrary to what she asserted, or, you know, maybe there's some type of mental or emotional issue or whatever that was leading her to draw erroneous conclusions and to be unwilling to admit when she did so. So, in other words, I mean, twisting the words of others and not appearing to care about the repercussions is something that you could accuse somebody of, but you could also be guilty of it. And that doesn't excuse, again, like I said, some of the things that Ron actually said or did because he was out of line. But there's also um, some accountability that has to take place on her part um, as well. Um, anyway, I think the ethics board also ruled that Ron displayed inappropriate and dis- disrespectful behavior with David Johnson when they were talking about that whole PSE and um, Island Wood or Island Power thing. And um, uh, the Island last Power. complaint, Island Power, yeah, mm-hmm. the last complaint with um, Lisa Schultz, um, th- that was an interesting situation. Um, it was a very unwise decision on Ron's part uh, to communicate with and funnel information with a banning city council member, even if Ron felt Doug's actions were ethics violations, you know, calling Ron a bully in the Kitsap Sun news article and trying to recruit Chief Hamner while he was still employed here, which, you know, the ICMA said, these weren't violations, ultimately. I mean, filing with uh, them, ICMA, by the way, is International City slash County Management Association, but um, that would have been the appropriate move, and then that should have been the end of it based upon that decision that that, that they uh, came up with. But not to interact with and share information with uh, with Councilman Peterson and and have this, you know, the banner tattler and all of this, the emails that went back and forth and kind of joking. It was just not appropriate. It was a line cross for a Bainbridge Island City Council person. It potentially put Kobe on the hook for liability because he was doing this from, you know, his Bainbridge email. And, you know, I think that the comp- – I went over there once, I think, to the Bainbridge – or the ban- banning tattler Facebook page oh and God. looked at it. And, it, and it's – it was like something that no one, no one employed or affiliated officially with the city should have should have been reading or responding to on any level. It just you know back out of the room slowly, let them do their thing. And if city council, I mean it, it was just, I mean my God, it was just like my God, human beings, come on. Um, the Islanders look uh, look calm. It's just, <laughs> just basic adulting. It's like this is not the way you. You know, and maybe that's because of the leadership stuff that I do with C-suite people. It's, it, I, I just, I'm always stunned when I see adults consciously choose certain behaviors that are co- completely unflattering and, and that don't resolve anything in any kind of a, a productive way. I but, think people are hurt, uh, though, and in banning, they spend a lot of money talk, I, to bring them in. I don't out, want to talk about banning. I, I, don't, I, I really yeah. don't want to talk about banning. I mean, I don't. Okay. I don't want to cut you off, but it's like, I don't want to talk about them. It's their business. Okay. They have to resolve their business. Our concern as Kobe, um, you know, I, 
if city council didn't have the foresight to put some provisions into the chief's contract after they gave him the double bump in his salary about staying here for a certain period of time, which would a, which a private sector uh, C-suite person would have done, then that's their fault. Um, I, I, like I said, I don't disagree with everything Ron has said or done in this service on city council, and I also think the public knew or should have known what they were getting into when they elected him because his behavior regarding Wisconsin was obvious. Um, he made some bad choices here. Uh, it might cost him his seat, and uh, he he really should not have gotten involved in any of that, whether he was contacted by them legitimately uh, pursuant to some article or anything. He he has no right to interfere with someone's uh, employment once they're gone I'm, from there. So I'm going to throw up uh, one little thing, and devil's advocate thing, and that okay. is there are some people that would say Ron has injected some discussions in the city council that have not happened for a long time. And so in his defense, he has brought things to light in making sure there's conversations around the way, for instance, the city spends money in a way that a lot of others have not done for a long time. So there are some people who would say Ron has been one of the best council members in that regard, and it's kind of like, you know, you know, there's pros and cons, right? Yeah, yeah he's made some, some things that people don't like, but he's also done some things that people really do like. And um, it's an issue with spending a lot of money in some in certain cases, and and and, uh, and kind of putting citizens on the hook for these expenditures. And I think people have been like, "Whoa, wait, wait, wait a second. And of course, they're projecting a little bit because just because the city, you know, planner and city staff present something to the council doesn't mean the council agrees with the plan. They have to listen respectfully and then have discussions. And sometimes people put the cart in front of the horse and say, oh, my God, I can't believe you got a plan for $30 million for the, for the, court and the, and the uh, courthouse and the police facility. And it's like, wait a second, we didn't say we agreed with it. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, there's all this. Everybody's excited because livelihoods are impacted. People can't get ahead. We spend lots of money. That means high taxes. That means people got to leave. You know, I think that's why people. I think that's why emotions are so inflamed. I don't. Well, I mean, completely and, disagree with that. Well, I mean, and I like I said before, I, I don't disagree with everything Ron has said or done uh, in his service on the council, and I have no personal no. quarrel with him at all. So, I mean, no. this is just really a conversation about. I mean, it's human nature. I mean, there are some things that we're going to do that are going to be good, and some things that we're going to do that aren't going to be good. And I think that we can be better as a community when we're able to just note those things, um, and 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 just you know have some. There's, there seems to be, like you said before, there's a very black and white absolutist thinking. There's some people that are actually fans of that, and and I'm not. I mean, if there, if some, you could be one of my best friends in the world, but if you do something that I don't like, I'm going to let you know. And I would assume that our relationship is strong enough so that you can handle being let. Um, no, being let known that this is not appropriate, and the same thing goes for me. You know, it doesn't matter how much you know someone likes or dislikes me. If there's something that I have done that they can say is wrong and they can point to it, then I, in good conscience, I'm going to have to take a look at that. So I think the point for me is it's not an emotional issue for me anyway. It's you've done some great things over here. This was not a good decision, and hopefully, you know, the the ethics board actually came back with their. Um, their opinions, I think, on the yesterday or the day before or whatever. And so in a nutshell, they're basically, you know, talking about how he really shouldn't have done what he did, especially with the banning uh, outreach and whatnot. And they're hoping that he will reflect uh, thoughtfully on how he might want to better demonstrate the city's core values um, and and ultimately to, to think about, you know, his behavior and, and 
unless he wants to pay the price for that, obviously, by not being elected again. Or, you know, there are some determinations that they have, you know, that um, uh, of conflict of interest or rules of confidentiality that rose to the level of possible intervention by the city council and the ethics board, you know, wants the city council to look at it and they might consider some options for action that are set out in the code of ethics beyond just waiting for him to be voted out. So there's that. Um, but I think that in general, I mean, there's, it, I, I actually like people that are straightforward. I like people that tend to be a little bit more blunt. I don't like passive aggressiveness. I don't like people that try to, um, you know, raise the clarion flag about being certain things and then their actions don't, don't line up with that. So I would say that I would probably, um, tend to favor people more like Ron who are straightforward than not, but I also know there's a line. And so when you're an elected official and there's issues of ethics, you, you have to adhere to that. So there you go. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Uh, I think we, I think we covered a lot of it and it's just kind of like, uh, um, I think there's a, there's a place for the dialogue. And of course with city council, things to be constrained along certain guidelines. And I think, when people are getting hurt or money is being spent and there's issues with that or people are concerned about things, they sometimes resort to, you know, lashing out. And I think there's there's a way to channel those energies and say, look, we have choices. What do we want to do? And uh, let's instead of calling each other names, let's let's work towards better policies. So, yeah, that's that's my final yeah. thought on it. Yeah. So, hey, uh, let's talk about the black hole. I think it's pretty cool. I mean, I'm surprised we haven't seen one before. <laughs> but now that we have the, the mathematics and the data to, to look for these things, um, I think it's great that they actually have a picture of – it's not actually a picture of the black hole. It's a picture of everything falling into it, <laughs> which, of course, is funny because, it's you know, no, you don't see the black hole. The black hole is the hole in the middle. It's where it's black. There's nothing there. And uh, I just think that's kind of that's cool. Um, the whole controversy, actually, I haven't read uh, the details of it because I just think it's wonderful that people have found it. And the fact that, you know, there are some people that didn't want to give the, the lady who developed the software or worked the data to actually find and come up with the picture, um, I think that's kind of bullshit. In fact, even her own coworkers are like, no, 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 she did it, you know, leave this out of there. But, again, there's people that are resorting. What we're falling into is, is there's this pattern of, if we can just rhetorically attack people, then we can get our result, whether it is to kind of put people in their place or we don't like certain people or I want to be sexist or I want to be ageist or I want to be this or that. I'm going to use rhetoric to get my, my, my gain. And the reality is, no, rhetoric is not enough if it's not backed up by facts. And there's an environment right now where everything's about arguing rhetoric Rhetoric by itself should not be sufficient to sway people's opinions, and unfortunately too many people are just listening to the argument and making decisions based upon it and not looking at the facts. Well, you know, it was quite brilliant, you know, the black hole and the discovery, and, and you know, there was kind of yeah. a, a joke on the um, uh, the uh, show that we saw that was like, oh, wait, you know, so Hollywood has actually been too accurate, so now we're not surprised. But you're right that on cue the argument about sexism and giving credit where it isn't due kind of popped up and I'll get to that but you know it's kind of cool that the uh, black hole has a name now it's called Povehi 
um, and it's spelled P-O-W-E-H-I. It's a Hawaiian phrase that refers to an embellished dark source of unending creation. And so two of the eight telescopes that were used to capture the photograph are located in Hawaii. So Larry Kimura, who was a Hawaiian language professor at the University of Hawaii at Hilo, was approached by astronomers involved with the project, and they and they gave him the honor of, uh, of naming it. So that's pretty cool. But the awesome. supermassive black hole and its shadow at the center of a galaxy is known as M87. It was photographed back in April 2017, and the results were only revealed on Wednesday. But there are more than 200 researchers that were involved in the project, and they had worked for more than a decade to capture that image. And... Um, the telescope array collected like 5,000 trillion bytes of data over two weeks, and it was processed through supercomputers so the scientists could retrieve the images. Now, the person that we're talking about, Dr. Katie Bowman, I hope that's the way her name is spelled, but she was a postdoctoral fellow at MIT and a member of the team running Event Horizon Telescope. Um, and she ended up in news articles, like you said, and no doubt inspired women and girls around the world, given that science fields are heavily male-dominated. And I know that as a tech person and whatever. But she worked on algorithms and led a team, but it didn't take long for the trolls to come out and call her a fraud or to challenge the value of her involvement on the project. And, you know, here was a woman who clearly and openly praised all who played a role in the achievement that the world witnessed. And she wasn't asking on any level for lone star recognition here. Um, and it's it's interesting because my own experience with you know women in the C-suite or women that have you know penetrated the glass ceiling is that we always get to that point where we're thanking the team versus ourselves. We deflect a lot, and and that's not very typical of of men. But it reminded me of when Donna Strickland won the Nobel Prize in Physics last year. And, you know, the whole headline thing was she's the only, you know, she's only the third woman to do so in history. And people, of course, you know, wanting to nitpick and for whatever motives across the Internet, they they were quick to note that she was actually sharing the prize with two other people. So it really wasn't, you know, her prize, so to speak. And it's like I can do an entire show about what I've encountered as a woman in STEM and other male-dominated professions, but none of this to me is, is surprising. And so I wonder – you know, just throwing it out there, how many people could actually name the collaborate, collaborators with uh, Stephen Hawking, you know, without Googling it? Do, do you know who the collaborators were with him at all? No. No, but I okay, also see, don't even assume that Stephen Hawking was the only genius inspiration to find many of these things. I always think of it as usually it's a team effort. Sure, some people back in the day were like, Arguing, you know, I, I think of like the guy who uh, was talking about trans fads for years. He's kind of a hero because he's somebody yep. who was arguing and wasn't being listened to for 20 years until everybody went, oh, yeah, actually, you were right. Um, there's an example of somebody who should get sole recognition for something because he fought for 20 years against an entire establishment. On the other hand, there's many people that all kind of agree and a lot of people contribute to something and they get recognition, and the person that kind of pops out or looks unusual or whatever, certain people get recognition, not everybody gets recognition. But I always, almost always think that a lot of these really complicated technology-inspired efforts aren't just one person. There's many people usually working together. Uh, so, yes, I, I think she absolutely does deserve credit. I think her, the people that work with her and collaborate with her that she gave credit to certainly deserve credit. And I don't think we we got to stop focusing on you know, the one person all the time. We gotta start thinking that everybody can have contributions if we, we get if we get ahead. Like with women in STEM. I'm I, I think that we'll have success when it no longer stands out that a woman made a significant contribution. 
because that would be like, well, so what? Yeah, of course women make significant contributions and have throughout history. Until we get to that mindset, that tells me we're still dealing with a sexist mindset that says, oh, my God, a woman did this. Why? Why is that? Why is that yeah, exactly. You know, that plus people of color. I mean, it's it's one of those things that a whole yeah. affirmative action and everything else. And, you know, it, it kind of backfires sometimes because I overhear people saying, okay, well, here's the winner that won the STEM award and they're female and they're of color. So, of course, and so it kind of diminishes the, the true accomplishments of that person because everybody thinks they only got it because of those those two things. And so it it, it has pros and cons. Um, but you're right. I mean, you, 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 we have this historical context where, you know, hidden figures, you know, these people that we didn't talk about for so many years as being a part of, of, of our society and our history and our creations and inventions. And yet, you know, now we're in an argument, so to speak, or some people are, regarding, you know, what kind of credit should go to um, this woman versus people that will say Hawking without even thinking about the fact that he collaborated with Carter or Israel or Robinson on no hair theorem or that he worked with Beckenstein on other things. I mean, they, people don't even know their names. They're they're happy to say, you know, the Hawking uh, paradox or, you know, the, the Hawking radiation or whatever it is and give him credit for it without caring about the fact that there were other collaborators with him. So, you know, he didn't just toil away alone in the lab, um, just like, you know, yeah. Dr. Bowman didn't. So people just mention him and they don't mention the others, but then they want to make sure that we're on point with mentioning every single person that was on the team. And I, I think that we should give credit where due, but I think that the argument itself becomes a, a, a very um, telling commentary on society and, and how we want to make sure that you know, somehow on some level that people that are accomplishing things, whether they're female or of color or whatever, somehow they're corrected, you know, and, and, and everyone doesn't do that, but there's certainly a faction of people out there that do that. So I don't know. Uh, let's see, how are we on time? We're doing pretty good. I think we should leave some of the other subjects like the Race Equity Task Force um, until we get more data on that. And I think we should do a separate show about Bainbridge Island Girl Up, and maybe we can uh, talk to the robotics team another time and do a quick wrap-up of their season two. Oh, oh wait, wait, hang on a second. It looks like somebody wants us to talk about Seattle is dying. Okay, so that's the show done by Eric Johnson um, on Como. So let's do that really quickly, and then I think we can either talk about Boeing or we can talk about Jay Inslee or whatever. So, uh, wow, I mean, talk about manipulating a message. Uh, the guy does a very specific show with a very specific message, and people come out of the woodwork to distort the context so they can agitate about criminalizing all of the homeless people, which he never did. Um, or they fall back on the Sinclair as the conservative owner of Como, you know, so there has to be an agenda. And it's, they don't, they, never mind that some of the opinions and even the stats regarding an aspect of what's occurring has, has already been out there, or that Eric clearly stated that his station let him run with this trilogy um, without interfering that. with, you know, or similar comments in cross cut articles that despite some admitted changes given the new ownership, because there are some. There are people that remain with Como that say they never felt pressured into changing their own reporting. Others say their day-to-day -day wasn't influenced. Um, and after Trump was elected, they are very much aware that the muddied waters has, you know, have altered their perception of, of what they have to report, including the public. But still, there are former and current staffers there that reject the simplistic idea that their options are just to quit or be cast as stooges. You know, so it's 
you, you see, I look at some of these yeah. conversations and I want to get involved in them and I don't because I already see that don't. there are people that, that have no interest at all in the facts. They're just looking to spew and be angry at someone. So as far as I'm concerned with Seattle is dying and as someone who has been very involved with you know homeless youth and homeless issues and, and, and social service issues, I would just say the good news about this is that it sparked discussion. And some actions are being taken, but the usual suspects hide behind their rhetoric and their hyperbole and their Internet warfare while living in their comparatively safe worlds. So what do you think about it? Well, okay, I'm going to ignore the the rhetoric of the people attacking back and forth because I think that's stupid. I'm going to talk about the issue itself. Uh, I also talk a little bit about the reporting. Every every piece of uh, reporting that's planned, that doesn't mean that slant has been manipulated by the Mongol parent, okay? And I, I, I think that's pretty much false. I think that the reporter who developed the news story had a, had a story he wanted to tell. He emphasized certain ways, and people took issue with that. So, for instance, he recorded somebody saying, you know, look, my opinion of the lady living on the street is that everybody here has a drug issue doesn't mean that generally every single homeless person in Seattle has a drug issue, but that was part of the story and becomes part of its kind of its karma, right? So it has an angle, and it says, look, we're not dealing with the significant problems. And the approaches to homelessness, I think, that are documented in the story are fairly significant. And there's data, right? There's data. People being arrested and being set free and going out and, and, and attacking the business owners with impunity because... You know, they're hungry. They're going to go in the store and just steal stuff. They're going to just go steal food until, you know, until there's some change in the way the system is being run. Um, there was a story not that long ago about a homeless Olympian who was a bicyclist uh, in the Olympics. And she kind of was really, really great at biking, but she never found her foothold anywhere else in society. And she ended up being one of these people that was homeless in Seattle. Now, she sleeps in shelters. I think she slept on the street once, and there's a story about her. And so I'm just saying is there's many dynamics, and that story is not comprehensive about all homeless issues, but it does point to certain things that are like, look, I don't think we can just, you know, um, decriminalize homelessness and try to uh, create this problem. And I don't think we can just criminalize homelessness. We have to, uh, we have to address the issue differently. We can't live, let, let people live on streets, do drugs in the open, we can't have these things, but we also can't have the alternative, which is, well, let's just let anything go. Right? There's got to be some different types of solutions. But that issue is stirred up as we have to come up with different issues. So, um, and I think part of the problem with homelessness is it, it's got to be dealt with also at the federal level, because right now it's one of those things in econ- economics is, is an externalized issue. In other words. Some city doesn't want to deal with their homelessness, so they, they give them bus tickets to the next city, and boom, their problem is solved. I'm like, wow. <laughs> you know, as, as long as people do that, as long as people start offering one-way bus tickets for the homeless to go to other cities, and an area is, per, is perceived to be better to be homeless than in other areas, you're going to have problems. And, uh, and you know, Hawaii has the same issue, too. It's, it's, you know, people go to Hawaii, and they can't go to Hawaii because they don't have money to get an airplane ticket back. They live in they live in outside in Hawaii, and you know it's like oh my goodness. 
Well, so, you know, there are there are people who are um, are involved with the homeless um, issue, or they have been homeless, and so they have a personal uh, agenda in trying to protect what they perceive as a tax against the homeless community. But yes. um, if you were really looking at the show with um, as objective um, eyes as possible, then you would not come away with that. And right. um, you know, there were there were clearly when I looked at it because I'm a discerning person, I, I saw that people were giving their opinions, and I even had a conversation with someone where we went down point by point, uh, looking at the um, show and wrote down who the individuals were, what their perspectives were, um, what the basis for their perspectives um, was, and then you know just kind of use that to assess you know where we wanted to place this show on on the spectrum for us and and it was just information it was it was the third um show in a trilogy of specific issues about homelessness it was not trying to speak for all homeless people by any stretch of the imagination and it just you know there were other counterpoints and other stories that came up that were where this one guy was like well i really wasn't homeless it was dishonest and it was like i went back and looked at it and it's like well he didn't say that the person was homeless not that particular one but you know then there was another story where the guy that actually taped the footage and there was much more footage than shown that indicates this guy that was actually out there with his pants down, sitting on the street screaming. He actually was on drugs that day, and he was under the influence, and he told that to a reporter. So it's kind of like people just take these little snippets and they throw them back at one another. It's like monkeys flinging poo. They're not really trying to come to an understanding or or trying to move forward to do something about it. They're just trying to find somebody who can be wrong so they can feel better about themselves and they can pat themselves on the back as being more more intelligent or more knowledgeable or, or whatever it is and, and and it gets nothing done because these are not the type of people that you know from my experience have gone out there to do anything to help the situation it's just a theoretical argument for them and and that's not enough in my opinion so um i don't really have much to say about seattle is dying other than i think that eric did a good job of, of sparking a conversation that needed to be had and uh specifically with respect to seattle and things that they need to do to clean up their act um and because it is a changing dynamic there in the city and has changed since even we've been here 20 some odd years ago so you know it is what it is deal wonder, with it or don't deal with it but i wonder what the impact of having that show out there now has done to potentially change like the way they're going to try to approach the problem because i think really at the core of it what they're trying to say is systemically we don't have the right solution we can't do more of what we're doing now and solve the problem we have to change the way we're approaching the solution to the problem. And I right. think that's the core message. So the question will then become, if we keep doing more of what we're already doing and getting similar results, thousands of people on the street, people dying every day in the streets, people using drugs out in the open, some people just trying to survive, right, because there's you know no sanitariums, no shelter beds, no other things, you know, and basically being victimized by the way the current system is structured, that too. I mean, are we going to change the system, or are we going to continue to do more of the same? I would hope that uh, it would be interesting to see if a year from now, if there was a follow-up, like, what's changed? <laughs> and if we find yeah, out I think in that a year from people... now nothing's changed, then it's like, well, the rhetoric is not enough. We're going to have well, to make I think different also... choices. 
Well, I think also there are people that are saying, hey, I don't think the choice is to throw everybody in, the, in jail and, and, and then start to force them to, um, you know, go through rehab or whatever, which they weren't saying that either. But, of course, you know, that's just the, a good way to, to, you know, hyperbole once again. So it's a solution. I don't think it's the solution. There are multiple reasons um, people are homeless, and you're going to have to address those issues uh, and the solutions for each one of those subsets. It, it, the solution is going to be different simple as that. It's like anything else. I deal with it in public policy all the time. You, you're not going to be able to throw you know, a bucket of water on something and call it done. You just can't. There are different pieces that you have to take apart, and then you have to try to deal with those things. People tend to be very impatient with that methodology, but that's really what works. So speaking of politics, um, here's a combo topic we can talk about very quickly, local and global implications, and that is Jay Inslee's run for president. Um, his platform is heavily focused on climate change, and he's actually the first politician from the state of Washington to run for president since U.S. Senator Henry M. Jackson in 1976. So any predictions uh, that you want to uh, make about what's going to happen with Jay's run here? uh, First off, bless him for doing it, okay? There are people that, you know, there are people on both sides, people that, you know, are supporting him, and then, you know, sometimes I read, where Jay was running, oh, my God, the, the, the horrible comments underneath, like, you know, people saying oh, yeah. they mean things about him. And it was like, wow. Um, I think it's great that he's trying, he's taken an issue that he felt is not being dealt with importantly enough, and that is climate change. And the reality is we do have to deal with climate change uh, much more directly than we have. Um, we okay, can't so. just let things proceed. So I think Jay's running is a great thing. Um, I don't think he's going to necessarily go all the way, but the fact that he's got his hat in the ring, if he does go all the way, oh, my God, <laughs> that would be something, right? Um, but I, I support Jay in what he's trying to accomplish, and I do think climate change is very important, and I think we have to be very smart about our policy choices going forward. And right now we've got an almost reactionary government that's trying to go the other way and implement policies that would be very contrary to improving climate change. And so, as a result, it's kind of a perfect storm. So I think Jay's going to do better than people predict because of the well, environment I, that's going on right now. It resonate, yeah, a topic that's resonating with people. And, I, you know, I like Jay. I mean, we've worked with Jay oh, for yeah. almost 20 years now, and um, actually probably a little longer than that. But um, I've always liked him as a person. I've always, I liked him when he was um, – you know, in uh, uh, Congress and whatnot, and yep. he, he gets it with respect to high tech and other things. I mean, I don't agree with him on every issue, obviously, um, but I think that um, I think that part of the reason why he's running is to put a subject um, into the conversation that is not being um, addressed by other candidates. I don't necessarily think right. that's going to get him a win. Um, but maybe he would end up being, uh, you know, a cabinet member, or maybe he would be a, end up being a good VP for somebody. Or I don't know. But then, like you said, maybe we'll we'll be surprised. I mean, you know, there are certain things that people are are very very concerned about that we you would never know it if you looked at you know the, the the mainstream media and the way that they play up all of the drama between people and you know this person's in the news every day and this person's fighting and you know it keeps people distracted but you know you never know people are very different and i've learned this through some of the client work that i do with people that poll is you know you can see all kinds of things on the internet and you can see all kinds of things in the media but when it comes to people being in the privacy of their own home or on a phone or whatever you know the polling data comes out very different sometimes and sometimes they do it because they 
want to make a good impression of the people that they're talking to, but sometimes if they feel like they're reasonably anonymous, then they actually tell the truth, and then you get some very really in- very interesting data. So um, there is a fundraising meet and greet this Saturday, I believe, on Bainbridge Island for Jay Inslee. And um, if you're listening out there and you're curious about it, I uh, you might want to go to Facebook and just kind of do a search and find it. But there's a way to go out there and and say that you're interested in being a part of it and being a part of the campaign and, and at least coming to hear what Jay has to say. So, um, you know, good luck to him. That's all I can say. He's a, he's a good guy. It, it's unfortunate that we have to spend so much money to support candidates who just want to do the right thing. You know what I mean? It's like, it, it, you it shouldn't take a hundred million dollars to run for president. <laughs> it really shouldn't. And and then on the other hand, uh, we definitely need better ideas at the top and better leadership right now. So yeah, more power to Jay. So there you go. Yeah, because I mean I, I'm I'm kind of in that mode right now where someone said, you know, what do you predict for 2020? And I'm like, well, you know, at the rate that things are going and the way people are behaving, I think it's going to end up with four more years of Trump. And that's another show, but that's just my my initial well you know i hello but people say enough right now but people say please no and then they do the very things that actually mobilize the base that got them elected in the first place so you know if you can people can say please yeah. no all day long but if as long as you're out there especially on the d side and everybody's stupid and ignorant and the, you know the, you know these the bases you know deplorables and this and that and the other and, and they're getting into those cat fights then that base is going to be mobilized and people that weren't voting that are apathetic are going to come out of the woodwork because they feel like you know it's a neener it's a gotcha and so now they're going to come out and vote and of course it happens on the other side too you know you got the republicans that are you know completely um, you know, stereotyping Democrats and calling them evil and this and that and the other. And, and then, of course, their base gets mobilized. And I, I wish that people could, you know, I think balance, democracy should always be balanced and go back and forth. I don't think it should ever be dominated by one party or another. But I also wish that, you know, people were able, the voters were able to actually achieve these objectives without the muck, without the mud, you know, without the 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 muckraking and all the stuff that really, frankly, is is historical in our in our country here. So whatever it is, we can dream. Um, what do you want to say about the uh, 737 Max 8 before we start uh, tapering off for the, I, the afternoon? I, I'm surprised that they wrote the software <laughs> to act upon the input of one sensor, because if the one sensor is wrong and they start n- putting the nose down on the plane, based upon one faulty sensor, and the pilots don't know have, have any ability to turn it off. That was kind of a design choice that if I was writing the software, I'd be like, well, what happens if the sensor fails or gives bad data? And there's two sensors. And the you know the software update basically says these you know angle of attack sensors, for the software to engage now, they both have to agree. Instead of all of a sudden just one of them saying, "Okay, yeah, we got to put the nose down because we think we're trying to we're trying to climb too fast," and uh, it should have been more clear to the pilots that the, what the system was trying to do. Because if they're aware of where the flight is, and then all of a sudden the nose is going down, they're pulling back up on the stick and they're fighting the system. That's a problem. So. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, that, that's, and you know, that's one part. And the other part is Boeing being kind of in uh, having a lot of influence with the FAA certification process. 
because the FAA doesn't have the experts. They have to rely upon the airplane manufacturers. There's a whole other conversation to that that's going to yeah. turn out over the next year or so. So, wow. Um, I, I think Boeing's going to get the plane, of course, uh, but they're going to have to learn a lesson, I think, from this process as well. Um, and that is, you know, their, their engineering process has to have a little bit more oversight as well because even I, if I was doing that system and I was responsible for designing that software, I would look at that very obvious, like there was like something at the very top level that was missed. Like, do you really want to hack this software, start steering the plane down based upon one sensor, or do you, well, uh, you, know, do you want to have it more obvious? And I think the other thing, and you know, the, the bigger issue, obviously, is like you said with the FAA, you know, they don't have the budget to hire the people that have the expertise to be able to assess, you know, whether or not a plane has risks or how ready it is. So they're relying upon the input of Boeing uh, and the manufacturer, first of all. And then the second thing is, you know, the 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 resolution would have been it just basically comes down to money and then the third thing is the training that they provided for the the pilots when they made the changes which was you know you know on iPad you know a 1 hour you know training session on iPad which is certainly not sufficient when you're talking about you know thousands and thousands of lives of people that are going to be getting on these planes assuming that certain um checkpoints and quality control uh, issues have been addressed and then you know you pay for it with your life and and even pilots who would you know be trained Technically, they'd be trained, and they'd want to to alleviate an issue like this when they're in the air. They don't want to die either. And so, when you've got a situation where either where even a pilot can't correct, you know, then you've you've you got a system that's that's just you know heading for disaster. And that's just a very unfortunate tragedy. They're going to pay for it. I mean, we were down to about three minutes here, but they're going to pay for that. And um, yeah, I think it's an yeah, unfortunate situation. A lot of people paid for it with their lives. I was yeah. surprised to find out that they added this software update. But if you wanted to know when the software was in that, was doing something or you wanted to be able to control it and turn it off, you had to pay extra for some kind of display yeah. or monitor or modification. And it's like, wait a second, this is not the kind of thing that you piecemeal a la carte. I mean, it's exactly. one thing to say, oh, you want to carry your carry-on luggage? You'll have to call it pay more. Okay. But for an airplane safety feature to not be included in the portfolio or being able to control an airline airplane safety feature, I think there should be some legislation to say, look, you can't make that optional. That has to be included in the base price. You can't make yeah. that something you have to make somebody pay. So, Oops. There you okay, go. Okay, that's it for us. Well, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Uh, you can listen to this podcast on our website, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM. We'll also upload the show to our Facebook page, which is Sammy Tommy Roger, the number eight, and talk radio, straight talk radio. This is Donya Keating. I'm signing off at about 2 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time on Wednesday, April 17th. We'll be back sooner or later. Sooner than later. <laughs> See you next time. Bye.